money doesn't buy happiness. It can buy you material items, but you know, I've seen that firsthand. Yeah. And, you know, as I said before, it's not not so much the richest people that I've met, and you know, at RSA, I met some of the richest people in the world. You know, sure they're happy, but you know, do they get to spend every moment in the moment like some of these other people that don't have that wealth? They don't. Mm. Yeah. Do they get to spend 10% of their day in that present? No. Yeah. You know, I'll challenge that they get to spend any moment in their life currently until they retire or whatever that looks like after, but they yeah. understand the present. Welcome to another episode of Dark Mode with Ben and Gabe. Episode 10. We're so excited we've hit 10 episodes. Thank you for joining us this far on the journey. And for those that have just joined us, we're looking forward to you going backwards and seeing some of the episodes we've recorded previous to this. In this episode, we are solving the world's biggest problems with technology. This is Gabe and I talking and we get raw. We talk about San Francisco, where I've just come back from. We talk about the state of homelessness. I give a bit of a recap on RSA conference. There's even a PSA for Emotet, which is back. And then Gabe introduces us to a concept called effective altruism. Now, we're really keen to get your thoughts and comments on this episode. So in the comments section below, tell us what you think of effective altruism really keen to understand what you're going to do to provide some good to the world as well hit like hit subscribe enjoy this episode and we will see you on the next amazing ben another solo ben and gabe episode how good how good what we, episode are we up to now this is number 10 that's crazy beautiful it's fantastic we're actually looking back at some of the episodes we've had and i think what great conversations we've had over 10 episodes or nine episodes. This is the 10th. Yeah, literally. We'll do a big amalgamation of all the highlights, the magic moments of the first 10 episodes of season one. Which I learned about today, which is amazing. (laughs) So in this episode, I really want to speak about things that are more near and dear to our heart, Ben. You've recently visited San Francisco at the RSA conference. And in parallel, I recently had a massive life revelation after reading Peter Singer's book, The Most Good You Can Do, over the long weekend. And we're now at this crossroads where, very vulnerably, I'm actually struggling because what I do day to day is not big enough. I've been asked to speak in a few weeks to a group of 400 principals about, for an education seminar, about my story and big ideas. And it's just like these synchronicities and all of these things happening are really amalgamating right now for me to be like, where is the most impact I can make? And it draws a line to this concept around effective altruism, which I'll explain and go into. But I want to actually move away from speaking about technology's impact on humanity. Yep. I want to speak about how do we use technology to solve the world's biggest problems? So what do you think? I'm all for it. My <laughs> uh, my computer's just finished a Microsoft update on me, so I'm happy. That's, yeah. Look, to me, this is, a, this is a topic that we can have hours on. You and I have talked about this for, for a long time, you know, over the four years of knowing each other. You know, this is something we're both very passionate about. Your statement around, you know, your vulnerable statement around you know, where's your biggest impact in life, uh, it rings for me as well in that, you know, we both come from the military where we're able to affect and see the change in, in global threats, you know, peacekeeping missions all the way through to, to kinetic action, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then moving into the corporate world, it's it's that challenge of, you know, how are we feeding the greater good in humanity whilst, you know, still being able to live the life we want to live? Yeah. And it's like, I really love working in technology and I could sell technology yeah. for days and I can help people build businesses around software. And I, I find it really interesting. I genuinely find technology interesting and also cybersecurity technology interesting. But for me, it's like, I've always been drawn to come into the cybersecurity industry to be like, hey, we could actually use cybersecurity to stop human trafficking. So how do we do that? You know, there's organizations and there's entities and there's problem solvers out there working towards that mission. But there's like there's bigger and greater good that we can be doing with these skill sets and with the global perspective we have and by activating communities around us, skills we both share and all this sort of thing. So it's like I'm inspired now to continue along this journey of figuring it out. And I, and I know that I want to have that connection into tech but into making the world a better place and in a meaningful way to improve the human condition around solving really big issues that we currently face as a global population well that's why we both got into tech i I, and speaking on behalf of you as well but got into tech because i was passionate about the change that it was making for humanity 
you know, growing up seeing the internet be evolved and, you know, seeing the evolution of the desktop into the, to the laptop to, you know, now virtual based computing to confidential computing to quantum computing uh, and, and the impact that these have on uh, livelihoods, whether that's been realized or not yet is up for a challenge. That's why I got into technology because there is such an impact that it, and positive impact that it can have on humanity. Uh, you know, you look at the medical system, that's just the best example of technology impacting human. The livelihoods that have been changed through cancer patients to, um, you know, um, disabled to people that have, you know, um, uh, mental challenges. It's, it's phenomenal the things that technology can do to impact a better livelihood on that side. And that's why we're in technology. Yeah, exactly. I want to tell the story for you because I know you won't do it justice. Give it a crack. <laughs> But you got back from RSA only a couple of days ago and you were shocked at the state of homelessness over there. Yeah. I personally don't actually enjoy visiting America because of those reasons, the widening gulf in the wealth gap, but also from a bigger perspective, the change in the global world powers as well. America's sort of on the, on the downward big hundred year cycles and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it's a really big socioeconomic and wider macroeconomic impact on the livelihoods of people. And you saw that firsthand, I'm assuming for probably the first time, the state of the homelessness in some of those really severe areas and pockets of San Francisco. And what you said to me was, I actually went and collected all of the swag from RSA into a few bags, and I went and handed out T-shirts to the homeless population in San Fran. Talk us through those experiences, Ben. So I've been to San Fran a few times, you know, in, in my days and, and been to a lot of places in America, but generally on the back or piggybacking, you know, a military trip, you know, I went on my honeymoon as well, but we chose the places we went for the tourism ventures, right? Yeah. Um, but for me, this trip really signified the, the divide in, in wealth. And I hadn't seen it at this level of this state ever um, in, in, a, in, a, in a first world economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been to third world and seen what it can uh, erupt to, but seeing it at this level in, in a first world was, it was shocking. It actually, it impacted my psyche on day one uh, and it continued throughout the week and it just kept playing on, on my conscious, you know, view on what San Francisco was. And, uh, you know, I talked to a few other people about this and you know, the, the general consensus was how bad it was, especially, you know, folks from Australia that, that I, I spent a lot of time with. Um, you know, Nick McDonald and I talked about it quite regularly, um, is how bad the state of homelessness was. It's not just a piece of San Francisco, it's all over San Francisco and it's in your face and it's really quite sad. On the last day of the conference itself, you know, there's so much marketing wealth that gets thrown around at RSA. You know, the vendors, they, they do a great job of marketing the absolute shit out of their technologies and, you know, for for good on them. That's, that's someone's job and they do a great job of that. And I'm not taking that away from them. There's so much waste in, in the marketing side of RSA conference. Uh, and I remember walking away and saying to you that something's got to be done. You know, RSA conference as a whole could align to helping San Francisco get off their feet and giving back to the community that has hosted, you know, the global conference for the entire week by asking the vendors to commit to giving out the swag that is left over uh, as a gift to the people of San Francisco to help support or at least give something as a sign of good faith back to the community of San Francisco. So on that last day, I went back into the conference and just collected a couple of bags of the swag. I wasn't interested in anything other than T-shirts. And I told a lot of the vendors why I was collecting the T-shirts and it didn't matter what size it was. Uh, And the response I got from every single vendor that I went and visited was uh was absolutely doing the right thing here take a few shirts it wasn't anything other you know there was no one that said why are you doing that you know there was no negativity it was all positive uh, affirmations that you're doing the right thing take a few shirts take a few bags so i took a couple of the bags and walked up to the tenderloin and just found a couple of the folks up there now i'm probably a little bit more fortunate i'm a bigger guy i've got tattoos so I, i don't come across as you know an easy target it was a bit easier for me to walk up there and, and just engage in a conversation with some of them less fortunate. Uh, and I gave them, you know, the bags and said, you know, distribute this as you want, but uh, it's, it's a gift from, from me to you um, just to say thanks for you know hosting us for the week, really. 
but it's it, it might sound minute and it might sound small on that scale but for me it, it gave me a little bit of a sense of what can be done more broadly in the industry and to give back to communities that host us for things like conferences um so yeah it definitely impacted me that's for sure yeah it's got a big link towards consumerism in the western world yeah if you think about the rise of minimalism and even Marie Kondo I know you're big into that Ben does it give you joy? Yeah, exactly. It's just like, yeah. how can we actually move away from consumerism, which a lot of people in general are so attuned to? A quick scroll on the phone, very easy, instantaneous, click a link, buy it. It's all set up through Apple Pay, very easy tech. Yeah, proves my life, happy days. Yeah. But the over-consumerism that we do have in the Western world is really stark. Do you earn more than $18,000 a year? One eight. One eight, yes. Do you know that the global average income is at $18,000 a year across the Wild. globe? But do, but do you know that the, do you know there's developing nations out there that the poverty line is $1.25 a day? There is a billion people in the world of a global population of 8 billion people, by the way. So it's one eighth of that, mm. right? That live on below the poverty line. There's 1 billion people in the world of 8 billion people that live on less than $1.25 a day. It's a crazy statistic, right? It's a crazy s- statistic. That's, I think that's out of the Pew Research Center, and there's a few other data things there. But the fact being that I really believe a lot of the time Western society, and look how fortunate we are in Australia, we live in an extraordinary affluent country. They're very privileged, very well-off, very developed, very safe, very progressive, the best nation in the world. Mm. Right. And we forget sometimes how well we have it. If you look at those data points around the globe, take the global perspective, realize there's still a lot of developing nations around the world. There's still a lot of crime. There's still a lot of arranged marriages. There's still a lot of homophobia. There's still a lot of war. There's still a lot of trafficking. There's still a lot of homelessness. It's just like, and then we get caught up at an RSA conference overspending on t shirts and swags that gets thrown in the bin at the end of the day. And you're out handing it to the streets of the homeless community. Mm. It's just like, you know, when you put that into perspective, it really hits you in the heart feels. Totally. It, it, it really did hit in the feels. And, you know, walking away from giving those couple of bags, which, again, seem minimal, you know, you've got a sense of if every person at RSA did that, the, the you know, the, the clothes on the back of those people would give them a little bit more protection and affordability from the weather uh, as something even yeah. just to stitch together as a blanket, for instance, like it's whatever the use of it is, is completely irrelevant to the fact that there is such waste and there's such a divide between what we all see as problems and the, the people that live below that line see as problems. Yeah. And I've been to some of those, I've been to some of those nations that have, I've been to a lot of them actually, the nations that live below that poverty line. And um, that's that's a real heart feel. That That's where you really get the the sense of, what needs to be done but then then also on the flip side there's some of the most connected people who live in the present yeah, that you will absolutely. ever meet you will ever meet yeah big time they, they understand what is the present they understand what's important and they understand values that we have we've massaged out of our lives yeah there's also a very important contrast to make there too whilst there's those data points and that story around developing nations and the poverty line there's also this element of, and I'll never forget the first talk I ever saw from Hugh Van Clydenberg. He is the guy that's a former teacher and he has the Resilience Project. Mm. So he does a lot of tours around AFL, NRL and sporting community. And he gives talks around gratitude and compassion because he went on a secondment over to East India or something like that. And these kids are running around with no shoes on, you know, no front teeth. They've got broken swings at the back of a dusty paddock in the back of their playgrounds in the schoolyards. And they're like, hey, mister. And they're just like super happy. And they're like, hey, come look at my swing. And it's like dangling out, like has yeah, like yeah. half the swings missing. He's just like, how are these kids so happy and so present to your point, Ben? And so then the contrast I want to make is the fact that on one hand in Australia and Western worlds, we have overconsumed you know, indulgence of materialistic items mm-hmm. in a very affluent country. But we know that Australia has a massive drinking problem. We have some of the biggest mental health problems around the globe. We've got traumas and all these sort of things. 
And a lot of people are depressed, depressed and anxious, but we live in such a beautiful country and such an affluent society. And then on the other hand, the contrast being, whilst all at that same token mentioned before, you've got these underprivileged developing nations that have nothing, they don't consume, they have one or two pairs of clothes. What connects them is their relationships with other people. And they don't, you don't need much to live. It's like have the old fundamentals of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shelter, food, water, compassion, survival. And if you've got those things checked, then, you know, you're seeing a lot of these countries and these people, to your point before, that are actually a lot happier and well off. Mm. They don't have those stark statistics around, you know, people by suicide and these sort of things. So it's just like, why, why is that a problem for humanity? It's a great question. I would love to know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. So how can technology impact that, Gabe? What's your thoughts? That situation yeah. specifically? First things first, I do think with technology, we can proliferate this message and bring an awareness to that global perspective, even just what I described there. Like show some stories of the young Indian community running around in the backyard with nothing. You know, show that to our younger brothers and sisters, show that to our school age children, because it's like you have that. People don't actually really know this. You know, I've got a younger sister living with me in my household and it's very much scroll on Instagram, on TikTok. I don't have this. I want to travel. I want more of this consumerism just to generalize that age group, battling to get off the socials and get away from that psyche and that influence too. And I was talking to Kayla the other day. I was like, why don't we develop a program where we take people like that in that age group and take them over to these developing countries or show them through the media forms that we have available to us through technology, what that global perspective actually is and bring those data points and bring those stories and those narratives to the surface and give them that perspective. I think by showing and demonstrating that, you could also solve a lot of the psychological ruts that a lot of people get into into you know the depression and the anxiety that we have around in the in the cultural world and in this localized country it's a good point just just, yeah i know you've got a second two there but my younger brother when he was in grade eight went on a un uh, young un leaders trip to africa Mm -hmm. uh, and and got the chance to to see you know the other side of you know the third world problems and he came back from that trip completely different. Yeah. Uh, and as a young 13-year-old impressionable boy, he's carried that through to his manhood now and, and is now a teacher who does more charity work than I know anyone else does. Uh, and, and he does that because of the things he saw as a young impressionable child. Um, so the more we can expose, not expose, the more we can showcase the disparity between first, second, third world countries to that generation, I think the more that, they're going to grow up with that impacting their, hmm. their yeah. adulthood. Yeah, exactly. That's, and it's a good use case for that. Hmm. Another way we could do it is, and this is talked about more recently today, especially in things like censorship and social media, looking at when things are taken down or posts are taken down. But like, I know this is near and dear to your heart too, Ben, as a father of two young girls, but hmm. the online bullying or the grooming as bad as trafficking that occurs through internet technologies. Like on the flip side, where are the technologies to really stop that? Because technology is still developing. And the link I made at the start, which was how do you use cybersecurity technologies instead of protecting an enterprise? Well, whilst protecting an enterprise, shift that and protect the individual or protect the safety of online communities. That conversation is coming to the fold more and more. It's becoming more prominent. People are becoming more aware of it. But it's like, you know, we should have these things embedded to keep our community safe online. Well, it's protecting your generation. Yeah. And then you've got generational protection that is inbuilt, ingrained, and, and able to then be rebroadcasted. Yeah. The mental health of our children in, in the education system is just flawed. Yeah. Um, you know, the news every couple of days, there's a story about child suicide, and it just kills me every day of the week, especially as a father of two. It's like, how do you stop that if you don't have, you know, the, the technical ability that I might have? But even my ability, I'm going to miss things. You know, I'm, I don't want to be that helicopter parent that sits across all of their platforms because, hell, I don't want to see that. I wouldn't want my parents to see some of the things that I did. But 
in the same vein, it's like, how do you, where do you draw the line of protection afforded to a child as a parent and where can technology then be provided to be secure by design for our youth? Yeah, exactly. And it can become very dangerous very quickly. And hence why we have a lot of pressure on even governments and online safety mechanisms and privacy laws to mm. keep evolving. Because as we speak about, there's a lot of unintended consequences that come with any invention or any advancement, especially technology. But there's not too many technologies out there that were designed to be malicious. Yeah. They, they were designed with intent to provide value to humanity, whether yeah, that's I mean, in something small like making a lollipop or... Yeah, exactly, Ben. I got very excited then because like even the example of Tim Berners-Lee creating yeah. the internet was to help academics publish their work across the globe. Yep. Like now look at all the amazing advancements there. Are. You did, probably didn't imagine how much it would explode, right? It's like, you know, we have a very good tendency as humans to t- be imaginative, as we spoke about earlier, and just absolutely run the ball and come up with so many more things. And that's why that's what makes us really different as species in the world is because we have that ability to create and co-create and imagine a future and imagine new ideas and improve the world around us. But of course, and what we work in as practitioners is unfortunately bad people always do bad things. And that's why it's important for all of us to be anchored in really solid ethics and morals. And how do we teach our generations and our children to do that as well? And how do we, have the courage to stand up in a conversation in the hallway and say, hey, hang on a second, I don't agree with what you just said there. Mm-hmm. Take, take your microaggression away from this workplace. But it's like if people are unable to face the music and stand up and be courageous in those environments, like how are we going to stop the world's biggest problems around some of the biggest issues? Like, so right. I'll throw a challenge out to you. You, know, you mentioned bad people doing bad things. I look at it as there's only a minute number of bad people, truly bad people. And then there is a majority of the malicious side that are just misguided uh, and whether they're misguided by their place in society or, you know, the, the fact that they might've been brought up in a second, third world place and they're just trying to get out of it. Um, that's misguided them to do things that are inherently malicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so for me, I look at a lot of the people that we're trying to protect enterprise and organizations against, it's generally the bad side, but the majority of the teams that sit within them are just misguided. Yeah, uh, and and therefore impacting or proliferating that bad side of, of human nature. Yeah, exactly. And that's why people have the choice to make. Yeah. Do you teeter on the seesaw and go down the path of destruction and do the bad thing, be misguided and it's a big snowball slippery slope then? Or do you choose a point at whatever point in your life to go the other way and do things for the good? But the example, Ben, we even spoke, spoke about this on a previous episode, just the last one, episode nine with Jason. Just like kids who have the skills between 14 and 17 years old, young males, let's look at the example of the lapsus group. They have these skill sets to be able to demand ransom from big profitable organizations. And at that age, when you have a higher risk appetite, you couldn't imagine a future where you are slogging away, hating your job in a nine to five corporate world and having to wear a suit and tie and do something you hate doing for 50 grand a year. You could just hack something and earn 200K a pop and a few million, if not hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars a year doing something malicious. How can those misguided people, and no matter what age they are, choose a differential? And that's why I think there's a lot of structural reforms that need to occur. A lot of these superstructures and these big systems like education system, like even the workforce, which is a shift happening at the moment, do need to advance and get up with the times because the world's changing rapidly. Technological advancements have a lot to do with that, but we do really need to upgrade the way we think and improve our human condition and all facets of the dimensions of life, which needs to be looked at holistically and not in a siloed approach to actually start shifting the world and moving that into a better decision and a better outcome. But I do also want to say, despite poverty line and all the bad things that do happen, There's another really good read called Factfulness. And there's some really great statistics coming out of World Economic Forum and the UN and all these sorts of things that are showing and demonstrating and proving and are evidenced by the fact that the world is actually improving. Mm. So, you know, those below the poverty line populations, it's becoming less and less every year. 
or over the course of five years or 10 years, things are actually getting really a lot better. So it's very promising. Yeah. I'll throw something out controversial too, because a few people have their own opinion on you know, Bill Gates as, as a person, but you know, a good example is, is what he's done in the African nations is creating the basics of, you know, what we, pre- we, you know, we take for granted in, in first world economies is toilets, mm-hmm. for instance. What Bill Gates has done there is created through his foundation is a system whereby there's, there's not a requirement to create community-wide plumbing and irrigation systems because water is of value. Um, so they use their own technology there to, um, to essentially biodegrade the human waste, but still provide them with the basics for toilets and toiletries and, and hygiene and things like that. You know, these are some of the things that, that can really impact them and, and is what is, it, is being attributed to the uptake in you know, some of these stats coming out of the World Economic Forum to say that you know, there is an uptake in, in uh, I guess, the basic human concepts for third world uh, for first world economies in in some of these places yeah it's like basic human rights just yeah sanitized yeah well it's not even a right it's just a it's a it's a basic human full stop yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. but just in the last week warren buffett became the most philanthropic highest donated 85 person yeah of his wealth and this is actually a really interesting argument here and like i'd love to get into a debate about this with someone yeah because I like to get in debates, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I love seeing you in debates. The, <laughs> yeah. These really high net income earners, these high wealth individuals, like the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts of the world, yeah. who have such a heavy slant on philanthropy. Now, there's an argument to say, well, we appreciate that there's a wealth gap that's widening. But again, if we figure out how to do those structural reforms, we can make the world a better place for the global population, right? But take the work Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are doing. Mm. They are literally in the 0.00001% of the population in terms of earnings. And like 95% of their earnings are going to making the world a better place. So this is in the concept of effective altruism. Altruism is fundamentally a description of a characteristic where you believe in a greater good than yourself and Mm -hmm. sometimes to the detriment of yourself, right? for whatever capacity that is. But effective altruism is when you are finding the highest impact or the most effective cause or outcome that you can do as an altruist. If I take the example of myself, right, I could go and work for a charity tomorrow and go and apply my trade and help be charitable and improve poverty, for example. Mm -hmm. And I actually would really like to do that. Or on the contrary, I could donate 50% of my income to a charitable organization because I have those values and I'm anchored by those morals, that morality and those values, and I'm a high income earner. And so the most effective way I can contribute to the greater good right now is probably option B. Now, if you look at, again, the example of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, there's so many people out there that are social narrative grab the pitchforks, go after these guys that are high income earners and all this sort of thing, right? But it's just like, hang on a second. And it's probably fueled by a social narrative and malicious intent and storytelling on social. So that's Mm. a whole other gamut we need to go into in terms of just making that whole forum less of a boxing battle and more of an effective place to be. It's a gauntlet, not a gamut. We're going to go down there. but Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But then you actually look look at what they're actually doing in the world. In their, philanthropy, uh, in their philanthropic endeavours and all the projects that Bill Gates is building and the sanitary resources that he's building in African nations and what Warren Buffett has done. And these guys are actually making the world a better place. And it's just like, we need to go back to that point to say, well, first, let's not be so quick to judge. Secondly, we don't have to spite everybody that's successful. And they, yeah, well, exactly. And they're actually contributing to a wider, better, greater outcome. And to be charitable is something that I'm really drawn to at the moment. And just again, rabbit holing, where's the most effective use of my time? How can I get to that point? How can I start an organization? Where can I find like-minded people? How do I spend my time and energy and resources? This boundless energy I have, how can I go and put it towards solving big problems in the world and being like those people? So 
a very interesting argument to make. Yeah. You, you sent me that um, the, the basic concept of it over the weekend and just a, one of our generic texts. And, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't even write back because it took me a good night to rabbit hole the concept and just really sort of blew me away of, wow, that's that's something to really align to. Uh, and it's it's not just about when, it's not about how do I align to it, it's when do I align to it and when, when's the right time to make sure that I've got that effective piece of altruism yep. to be able to effectively commit to the wider change and really align to something that is meaningful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it even starts with, well, I think it's always got to be taking a look at the ethical picture, like what's the right thing to do. And mm. that we are speaking about that just before. You could have malicious intent, be a hacker, or do you come and be a practitioner? That's a choice everyone makes. Just like yeah. coming out, you know, my personal experience coming out of a lower socioeconomic environment took a lot to figure that out from a childhood perspective but I used defense and army to achieve that mobility and found out and figured out that there was skills transferability. And so I keep going and I was like, keep learning. And but it's like, I'm also really drawn by the curiosity that I have. And like, I literally invite as many people as I can to be the most curious about the world so we can be imaginative and think about how we can actually contribute towards these type of common goals. Love that. And, you know, for the listeners, It'd be really cool to see in the comments on all the socials ideas that you have for effective altruism and what you can do to impact the greater good. I would personally love to read through some of those comments. We get a lot of comments personally and, and through DMs on, on some of the socials, but I would love for you to publicize some of them in some of the, um, the public forums that we've got available to you just to showcase some concepts you have for effective altruism and something that you can do to impact change on. Um, I know I'm going down a journey at the moment, as you are, you're about 15 years ahead of me in terms of that, that brain speed uh, and, and working out what that is for you. But I'm certainly on that journey. I want to find what it is for me. And, and I think I've nailed that. You know, I just want to find out the right time to make sure that is and you know, being transparent for me, it's uh, as a father of two daughters, it's, it's finding out how to protect the next generation, the generations after that. You know, I'm sick of reading about childhood suicide. I'm sick of reading about you know, child pornography and the proliferation of it. And I'm sick of reading about missing children and, yeah. and, and all these types of things. It's we can find these people. We can find the sources of, of these, you know, images for pornography. We can find the source of, uh, of bullying. We can understand the tactics and techniques that are used to, to manipulate the socio uh, or the psychology of children. And we can make a change for that. And we can affect the, the platforms that they're making, you know, some of these plays on and we can help, change the the behavior of of students at that you know childhood education based level so they grow up with that mind and muscle memory to be able to understand what it is to then impact the generation below them as well i would love to launch a portal or a website or something ben where it's really dynamic like a bit of a mind map thing it's like posing a question how can we solve x and just have a big contribution and draw people to that and build that community and that audience around here's my idea Here's how we can collaborate. Bit of an open source project. I love that. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's launch it. Let's do it. Let's Dark mode it. open source project. Yeah. One of many. One of many. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is probably the most important though, because it will, you know, as we talk to, it's going to affect change. Yeah, exactly. And it's a big journey too. And as you were speaking that too, Ben, I believe and I feel more than ever, people are looking for me. People are looking for more meaningful tasks and more meaningful work. And that's got a lot to do with some of these big macro factors and the changing dynamic of an aging population and the nature of work and gone are the days of being micromanaged in an office and all this sort of thing. It's just like when people are choosing to work, like what do they align themselves with? And I actually am seeing that in my day job at the moment where there's early in career professionals coming through the ranks and like all of them have side hustles. All of them are questioning corporate social responsibility. All of them want to know, are we a sustainable organization? And that's great. It's really, really good. Because the more we can think that way and the more we can actually all pivot ourselves towards more meaningful work, the better off we'll be. So we'll have a happier time doing it. We're going to bring more energy every day when we wake up. And we're going to be able to solve bigger and better problems with each other because we're social beings. So, yeah. As you were talking, I just, sorry, my brain went somewhere else. I was, yeah. you know, the, the good side of my brain was listening, but the creative side of my brain was on another planet. 
and the creative side of my brain was saying we've got a we've got a overinflated elderly population in mm-hmm. Australia uh, and more broadly in, in a global sense. There's there's a lot of retired people that have access to technology. Imagine if we created an OSINT army in in that sector that could do good for youth and generation where we could train them on some of the basics of OSINT to help find missing persons. Yeah, 100%. We spoke about this a year ago. We said, let's build an intelligence entity and let's use open source intelligence and an open source community and professionals with tech skills and professionals with human-centric skills and bringing them and bring them together to actually put them towards finding missing missing people. Yeah, having partnerships with the AFP, having partnerships with ASIO, all this sort of stuff. But yeah, like absolutely, we should. Thankfully, we're doing an advanced OSINT course soon, Ben. So we sure keep are. sharpening the skill sets. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. um yeah, I'm excited for that one. But uh, for everyone listening to, if you aren't aware, the AFP Australian Federal Police do a missing persons hackathon. Um, and it's aptly titled Hackathon because they give you intelligence or some leads that um, are live uh, and you can you can register on the website if you have any uh, OSIN or open source intelligence skills or even if you're just interested, you can watch the thread uh, and you can submit your own leads just working from home. But um, I employ everyone to jump on the AFP Hackathon um, page, uh, which I'll, I'll find the, the, in the show notes um, and, and have a look at it see if it's something that interests you and, and register for, because the more people that get on things like this, the uh, the more help we can do for, you know, people that are missing as well. I've, yeah. I've had a personal impact of that recently. A friend of mine had some uh, mental challenges over on the West coast uh, and, and was missing for two months. You know, there was a bit of concern for him, banded together with a few people and, you know, the West Australian community got together. It was publicized on the news and, and, you know, there was some closure there for the family and, and everyone involved. So that was great. But without the, the community support uh, digitally and per, in, in person, you know, that, that, could have, that could have gone on for 6, 12 months. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. No, I want to go it? into a whole thing there. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like the magic of Ozin. I don't think people realize just like how smooth it can be to develop skills in oh. rabbit holing things and, and helping to find facts and information yeah if anyone's interested you can start with google dorking sounds like a throwaway term and it sounds like it's something <laughs> like a like an insult but google dorking i'm not even going to try and describe it because everyone everyone can make their own opinion of it but essentially it's it's using google search screen languages to find certain things in the google engine or the beast that is google if people are interested and they want to start with with osint uh, or osint or however you pronounce it it's um jump on YouTube. There's some really great videos on there on, on honing skills and really just understanding what it is. But there are some tools out there that are open source um, that you can use to help the greater good. So Ben, a question back to you. Send it. What are your ideas around some of the solutions in using tech to solve big problems? I think we need to make a shift on, on the consumer of technology. We want to buy technology all the time. We want to consume it for our, you know, uh, our lazy brain essentially that's that's why you know majority of my house is is automated so that you know i can make things easier and give time back to myself but what can we do with the power of that technology to then uh, impact change right so um can we you know pivot alexa as a device to help you know children in you know, third world countries learn another language you know can we can we those those tools are so cheap you know, they're $100, 100 Australian dollars, which is, again, as you mentioned, is below some of the line of an annual earning for, for people in those, those areas. But if we can get them and download, you know, courses on English speaking and, uh, you know, they've got power sources there or whatever have you, you know, we can start donating them back across and, and people can learn widely accepted global language of English. Uh, and then there's, there's an avenue for growth in some of those communities um, so there's one of them. It's it's looking at what we've got in our general household and, and what we do daily, how we interact with technology and thinking about how that could be leveraged in those use cases. But then more broadly, it's it's about, for me, the decommoditization of technology mm. and, and giving back technology to the people, not in an open source sense, but this technology has been created for people. 
you know, Facebook was a great example of that. It was, it was grafted as a free technology to connect people. MySpace is a great example of that. But then the commoditization of that occurred and it changed the entire path of, of that as a platform. I think technologies need to maintain a level of grant by the government or, or owned by the government or, you know, some sort of global technology forum that owns that for the people. Um, we can use that technology for the, for the wider, wider good of people. But even just the fact that like not everybody has internet access. Totally. Starlink, so like, great example. There. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, Starlink's <laughs> going to change that with the satellite mesh network that's going up and, um, you know, all, all it would take was a few donations to, you know, some of those Starlink receiver networks and, and set up some of those platforms and some of those locations to then provide internet. You know, there's wider implications to that. There's electricity involved. There's, you know, the end devices, but that's just monetary cost for existential outcomes for some of those third world places. Yeah, exactly. And you give people that accessibility and that creative now to be able to use that technology to their devices. Yeah. Then you open up untapped potential then. It's bringing in a whole different lens to what, you know, has been dominated by third world society, sorry, first world society creativity. Mm. Yeah. We've got a whole second and third order effect of communities that we haven't even, haven't even broached the creativity level to be able to impact that change. Imagine once they start getting involved, what, what, the, what the race, what the human race can do. Yeah, exactly. It's also like how much is enough? Yeah. You, know, you hear stories countless times over and over and over again about successful people and making it and IPOing and earning hundreds and thousands and millions and millions of dollars a year. It's like, you know, and then the story of uh, went and sold the monk who sold his Ferrari, get mm. rid of it all and go over to, you know, practice spirituality because you come to that crossroads and it's just like, oh, we've been really caught up in this materialistic world and it's actually not true to myself and now, but it's just like, can we, can we cut all of that out in the middle ground and just yeah. like point the compass in the early days and you know, bring that equity to the world population? Well, that's like, it. That's, that's a good statement you said at the end there is bring that equity to, to the population. Yeah, we've got nothing against people that do that, right? It's, you know, I've kudos to those people that have put in the work and, and have, you know, made their, made their millions. But in the same sense, what, what's, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. It can buy you material items. But, you know, I've seen that firsthand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I said before, it's not, not so much the richest people that I've met. And, you know, at RSA, I met some of the richest people in the world. You know, sure, they're happy. But, you know, do they get to spend every moment in the moment like some of these other people that don't have that wealth? They don't. Mm. Yeah. Do they get to spend 10% of their day in that present? No. Yeah. You know, I'll challenge that they get to spend any moment in their life currently uh, until they retire or whatever that looks like after, but they yeah. understand the present. Absolutely. And it's not to say it's a comparison by any stretch no. of the imagination. Yeah. It's more the question is how do we solve the world's biggest problems? It's like, okay, well, what are the world's biggest problems? And then bringing that perspective around the reality of the current state and using our imagination and our human resources to imagine a better equitable society globally in the future state context. They're launching well, the dark mode TikTok. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask them how to use TikTok surely because <laughs> yeah. uh, we will be launching that and that's, that's exciting. I'm excited Very for that. Very exciting. Yeah. It's another platform that has reach. Uh, and you know what? TikTok as a platform, I've been very critical of it based by its, its ownership and some of the questionable things they do for devices. But when you look at TikTok and the reach it has to generational, you know, there's elderly people that use it. There's the youngest of the young children on technology that use it. And there's also broadcasting platforms that can do it for some of those third world countries. Mm. So TikTok as a platform has reach and, uh, and that's just going to help us get to the message across to some of the people that we would not normally touch. So I'm excited for that to launch. Yeah, big time. Big things coming, Ben. Big things coming. Big things. Big TikTok things coming. Big TikTok things. <laughs> no, that was that's a sentence and a half. That is big a big sentence. Ops. Big psyops. Yeah. Massive psyops. <laughs> hey, um, I've got a bit of a debrief on RSA. I'm I'm uh, I'm keen to push that out in this episode, Gabe. Just as a, a, a you know statement by statement, really, but then. Uh, uh, the return of a, a pretty large uh, organization that could rain chaos on on uh, consumers. So if you're comfortable, I'm just going to go through a few of the things that I've picked up at RSA 
Uh, and there's going to be a couple of episodes later in the, in the works that, um, you know, I met with some amazing people and I just want to say thank you for giving me your time and thank you to some of those people for letting me sit in under your wing and, and really come in for a, for a good time. So launch into it last week or week before when this episode goes live and some of the key messages were interesting, right? So I took a few points. There's only three key points I'll go through here. And then there's the story at the end, but you know, 85 to 90% of vendors on the floor were pushing the ZT message, the zero trust message. Uh, and it's state unseen to this point, whether the buzz is, you know, centered around market texture or deliverables. Uh, and I know our good friends, Chase Cunningham and John Kindervar are going to put the rubber to the road on testing out those newcomers to, to the fields there uh, and really test out whether it's deliverable or market texture. So shout out to, to Chase and John, you know, I spent a good amount of time with the both and it was very appreciative of their time as well. Um, let's, let's get John on the podcast in a couple of episodes too. He's, he is one of the most interesting cats you'll ever talk to. Either way, it was amazing to see, you know, the growth of zero trust and the understanding of the zero trust message, uh, and the, the extended framework that underpins that. So that's my first point, but yeah, on the floor, as soon as you walk down and when I say the floor for people that don't, uh, haven't been to the RSA conference, and I know there's a lot of you that haven't, it is three huge exhibition centers that are, you know, two are interconnected. One's a bit of a walk away. And the, the amount of sheer amount of vendors on the floor is, is overwhelming. Uh, and some of those stands would have cost 250,000, just to get up there, but some had some pretty simple stands, but either, you know, and that's, that's, that's not a, um, you know, I'm not trying to draw parallels there, but some of those you know, newcomers to the technology and the security industry also had the zero trust message and it was it was an overwhelming 85 to 90% that had that that was broadcasted so interesting to see second point iot ot scada all sorts of these platforms was front of mind um you know the the few keynotes i got to see and some of the few talking tracks that i did get to go and see outside of meetings it is a very underrepresented field of vision for the technology community and for those that don't understand, uh, it's Internet of Things, operational technology and SCADA systems, essentially your, your production fleets. But it was great to see. It was great to see some of the bigger names in technology talking about it and workshopping solutions to support the, you know, the wider implications of these systems. IoT, OT, SCADA, watch out for that in, in the next 12 months. Um, I feel like there's going to be, well, the era of convergence is coming quickly for vendors that have those solutions uh, and they're going to get consumed really quick by the biggest to provide that as a, as a module to a platform piece as well. Uh, and the last one, which was huge, um, was the API economy. Uh, and it was talked to frequently. Uh, and, and I was really impressed that it was talked to really frequently um, because it's something that, you know, gets, it gets, uh, it gets me concerned with, the, you know, the, especially the enterprise level. With the evolution of cloud-based applications, you know, bouncing from containerized or container-based orchestration systems like Kubernetes, uh, the language spoken between, you know, those is now API. Uh, and with the adoption of this language, it's enabled that convergence or, again, the convergence era uh, and, and more so the integrations to create that, that systematic fabric for those security tools to, to connect with and share across um, platforms. Is there an inherent risk associated with that? Absolutely, there is. Um, it's essentially a buy now, pay later scheme. Uh, you connect and provide your APIs to connect with that. You connect to this and 15 minutes later, you've got 20 APIs deep uh, and, and you've now extended your threat landscape quite significantly. In the future, it'll be effectively managing the view of understanding between and the actions across. It will be such a criticality for years to come, not just for posture management, but for GRC, governance, risk and compliance more broadly. The three keys that, that I got from the floor, um, Zero Trust, IoT, OT, SCADA, and, uh, and, and the third one being the API economy. Um, so they're probably the three I would, I would hang my hat to say watch out for in the future. But that was from the floor. The next one I've got is really like a public address statement for, for people. Nice, Ben. Any questions on the floor? <laughs> got a few questions from the floor. Send yeah. it. Were they anecdotal, you know, bypass in the hallway as you're whipping around the conference areas and a mix of keynotes and a few conversations you had? Is that where you gathered, gathered that intel from? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, um, I, I truly didn't spend too much time on the floor. Most majority of my time were there was spent bouncing between hotel rooms, speaking to, you know, the leaders of these orgs, which I was super thankful for and, and got some insights that I generally would not have got. So there was an absolute mix. A lot of those leaders I was 
I was pushing to get crystal ball statements from and, and work out what's next, what's in the review, what's in the rear view mirror, what's in the passenger seat with them. And then what's for what's in the through the windshield and what's what are we, what are we expecting? And the the general consensus was, you know, zero trust is here to stay. Zero trust is and the framework that exists beyond that, the extended framework is something that organizations are now adopting, which is which was great. For them, it was it was about convergence and it was about what's next to that, the IoT, OT, SCADA and, and how do we look at API and what's the API economy. Nice one. Very cool. I've got more questions, but I'll hold until the next part. So you may cover it. Sweet. Well, the next, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'll cover it in the next part, but the, the next part is more of a, a general, um, This it's like a warning shot for everyone and I really want people to be conscious of it. Emotet is back. Uh, Emotet was a huge piece of malware so i've got i've written a little bit of a story here so, so i don't forget pieces because there's a lot of people that listen that um i probably have have a, a, an understanding of emotet there's a lot of people that won't have an understanding of emotet so stay with me on this one gabe it's, it's going to go for about three minutes this is, this is my soapbox moment so for those that, <laughs> that may have a small understanding or not so much of emotet had its uh, it's ve- very humble beginnings uh, as a banking Trojan, you know, think of a Trojan as the beachhead for more landing craft, or think of it as the classic Trojan horse story in 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 the in uh, the Greek Troy um, stories from back in the day. But Emotet's beginnings were early 2014. They quickly proliferated to one of the most complex public pieces of malware. Um, and malware, for those that aren't aware, is malicious software, mal malicious ware software uh, in history. Typically, the primary method of entry for this piece of malware was email or mail spam, uh, and they were the first ones to play on the psyche of uh, email or mail spam to deliver a payload. Lots of people were doing it prior to, but um, these guys use the sense of urgency. You know, you've got a delivery coming today, or you're overdue on X payment, or you're, you know, more recently your COVID vaccine you know wasn't right. You need to fill out this so that you get your certificate, your updated certificate. Uh, you need to do this urgently. The government requires you to do this, you know, playing on what's happening now in order to get people to click through. Once that malicious document was opened, generally the payload was delivered through macros, which are automatically enabled on your device. And then your device beaconed to a C2 infrastructure. Again, for those that aren't aware, C2 is command and control. Essentially, it's it's beaconing or sending a, a signal to that other server to say, I've got a victim and you need to take control of that, that computer. From here, Emotet of the past crawled through your device looking for sensitive data with the end state to retrieve files on the terminal that contained banking information, et cetera, et cetera. Now, arguably, the Emotet crew are hailed as the first public malware as a service offering as groups like UK and Conti purchased pieces of the malware and the botnet army that they created and then vice versa. Emotet were then able to deliver the RUK uh, and Conti pieces of ransomware on the back end of their beachhead. Now, as with most polymorphic malware, the Emotet code evolved slightly every time it was accessed, um, which meant it was able to evade traditional (laughs) Microsoft signature-based detection tools, allowing um, that initial infection to go unnoted uh, or, or to go undetected in its infancy. Fast forward to early 2021, international law enforcement agencies took down the infrastructure from the inside. Uh, so the C2 servers, the C2 infrastructure was taken down from the inside. Essentially, what they did was it was a massive uh, multinational government operation. Essentially, they moved from the inside, the, the hosted nodes across to their own network uh, and then took it down from the inside, which was massive. It hadn't been done before in, in, in international law enforcement. Uh, but should it have taken seven years? Probably not. Did they get a number of the perceived leaders? Probably damn right they did. Um, has it stopped Emotet? No, it absolutely not. They're back with a vengeance. Um, now, the variant discovered a few weeks ago and demoed by a friend whilst I was at RSA, who I was stoked to one meet because they have a YouTube following that is millions of people. But um, I was I was able to witness it uh, as they would they demoed this to me. The new variant has pivoted to from the macro delivered beachhead, um, which is you know the traditional Word document. But the macros are now denied by default, thanks to Microsoft uh, for getting one thing right. They've now gone from that to Windows shortcut files, such as a .lnk extension. So if you do get emails that contain .lnk extensions, for instance, do not go near them. They then embed that within a multi-tiered method of entry. So still primary method of entry is emails. So check every attachment on every email, check the links. If anything's downloaded as a result of a link, 
make sure you have some antivirus software on your personal consumer-based devices, make sure it's up to date and make sure it's not signature-based. Ask your providers whether it is signature-based or whether it is behavior-based. Behavior-based might cost a bit more, but damn right, you're going to get the best protection. Um, so from here, the primary means of assault with this new variant is to target the cache banking credentials on Google Chrome in your browser. And many, many, many folks listening will be thinking, I don't have that. But when you get to a payment method, the Chrome browser prompts you for the three-digit code at the end and autofills the rest of your credit card details. I love the shock face there. That's where this sucker sits and it pilfers data. It will take everything in that Chrome browser cache credentials. It will then, and this differs as well, it'll take that plain text data for your credit cards. And this is where it differentiates a little bit more to the previous known emotets. Um, once that beachhead's there, the beacon then connects to a different C2 infrastructure. So, so the base knows it has a victim. Uh, and once it captures that Chrome data, it connects to the different infrastructure to transfer data and then disconnects that link, therefore hosting a secondary connector that is potentially ephemeral by design, creating a more detailed work for law enforcement to uh, target again. So two takeaways from here, Emotet's back. If you didn't get hit by it, you know, the last time everyone's really concerned with this new variant and there's proliferating even further and further. So Stay close to your emails, check all the links you're, you're clicking on, make sure you've got antivirus on your devices. Don't cache anything in Google Chrome. Please don't cache anything in Google Chrome. Passwords, uh, you know, it might sound like it's easy. Get a password management tool. It's not that hard to grab your wallet and put in your credit card details if you are buying something online. Just don't do the thing where you click yes when it asks you if you want to cache that credential. Um, so that's that's the key takeaway. I just wanted to get that across because when I saw it demoed to me, it was quite shocking. Amazing. That's my soapbox. Great job. Very good recap. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just like how much that variant can just keep growing and growing through to the virus analogy. Yeah. You know, it's just like, yeah. It's polymorphic. So it just yeah. it changes a little bit every time, which is why it was able to avoid and it will avoid or evade traditional mm -hmm. signature-based methods. Question for you. Did Bend you it. have anyone at RSA tell you a dark mode story? There, there is a dark mode story of my own, actually. Oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, so RSA is known for the parties afterwards. They're very outlandish parties. Now, I've got in my day job some allegiance to uh, certain vendors. And with that, it's, it's hard for me to be seen going to parties by other vendors. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the competing vendors had a party that, hosted a band that I was used to be in love with and I still am. Uh, it was an incubus, <laughs> incubus played. And I thought far out, how do I register with this event without, you know, making it known that I'm at the event. Uh, and so I didn't, uh, and the, the tickets were sold out uh, and we got there and I brought a few people because, you know, they can't arrest all of us. And uh, yeah, we managed to not even socially engineer our way in. We managed to do the whole pretend to be on the phone in line, take the phone because it was important over to the side uh, and then bypass the entire, it was a choke point too. So I'm not sure how we really got through, but you know, just the classic, I'm on the phone. We, we moved to the side, you know, I then passed the phone. So it looked like everyone was involved and uh, you know, it was too loud. We were standing. So we sort of made the hand signals that we'd walk over there. And by the time you knew it, we were near the front row. <laughs> we're, we're on top of the mosh pit. Really? Yeah. Nothing yeah. like a bit of social engineering. So good. Nothing like a bit of, there's, there's a whole bunch too, right? <laughs> you know, some of the conversations I ended up in, I just kept thinking to myself, how did I get into this room? Yeah. Uh, I'm it's, sure it's, it was very insightful. Yeah. And you know what it is, Gabe? It's, um, it's it's being unapologetically confident. Absolutely, it is. And 100%. and I, I yeah, I learned a lot of that from you in our early days. Is is not even apologizing. It's just being unapologetically confident and walking into the room like you you are meant to be there, and you've got something to to be to so people would need to listen. Absolutely, permissionless, permissionless. unapologetic, yep, rogue absolutely. operation. It's the only way to be in life. Yeah, but I uh, yeah. So so that story, I um. At another party, there was a cordoned off area where the, the global CEO and CTO, who I didn't manage to get an interview with, not an interview, a um, conversation <laughs> with throughout the week because they were tapped. They were in a bit of a cordoned off. You were interviewing them, right? Yeah, I was interviewing them, that's right. Yeah. A cordoned off area. And uh, I just unapologetically walked in with two drinks. I worked out what the CEO was drinking because there was only three drinks on at the bar, walked in with two in my hand, walked up and said, I'm Ben Sullivan from Australia. Here's your drink. Let's chat. 
Nice. <laughs> yeah, spent 15 minutes in there chatting to you know people I probably didn't need to be in. The rest is history. I love it. But yeah, there's there's a lot of um, dark mode stories. I don't want to give them away because a few of the people have agreed to come on the show, and uh, I want to make sure they get the the soapbox to tell their their own stories rather than rebroadcast because they're the way they tell them are pretty fantastic. So they'll get the limelight on the future episodes. Looking they'll forward get the to limelight. That. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was, it was um, you know, for, for all it was worth, I know, you know, we took a, I, I mentioned at the start, the, the heartstrings that pulled on me for San Francisco and the, the conference as a whole. Was it worth going to? Absolutely, it was worth going to for, you know, for anything else other than the people I got to meet and spend the time with. And, and I'm eternally grateful for that time I got to spend over there speaking with and learning from some of the best in the industry. Quick shout out to Chase Cunningham for, uh, for allowing me to spend a fair amount of time under his wing. So good. Love it. Yeah. What a legend. Yeah. Too good. And, uh, I don't know if he can drink as much as he said he could, but uh, we gave it a crack. Yeah. <laughs> I can only yeah. imagine, seriously. <laughs> Great. Well, that's a wrap, eh? That's what an a wrap. episode. Episode 10 under the belt. Done and dusted. 110 more to go. And 110 so on. for the next few weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good stuff. Thanks very much, Ben. Thanks, Gabe. I appreciate you. 